The Easter story is such a hopeful story. The story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is filled with the promise of new birth and forgiveness and renewal. And at a time like this, when we are all living through such an unusual time together, we're all looking for glimmers of hope. And Easter's promise of new birth and renewal, it, it just feels particularly important to me right now. And yet to get to Easter's story, to its glorious, hopeful end, the sad truth is that we have to travel through some very heartbreaking moments. Jesus' trial is a terrible mockery of justice, and Peter's strong denial of ever even knowing his dear friend Jesus is totally unexpected, and the unimaginable brutality of the crucifixion itself is something that is almost impossible to comprehend. These difficult moments in the Easter story have always been hard for me to take in, but I can read about these sad events with a sense of hope because I know the end of the story. I know that on Easter morning, Jesus will rise from the dead. He will bring forgiveness and new life. He will change the trajectory of the entire history of the world for the good forever. And so, yes, there is sadness in the story, but the sadness is ultimately overwhelmed by the hope of the resurrection. But there is one part of the Easter story that has always been hard for me to come to terms with. Um, it has no upside. There's no ray of hope. And the truth is, it's always left me wondering, and that is Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Just think with me about all of this for a moment. Judas was one of the 12 original disciples. He'd traveled with Jesus. Well, to actually, to be more accurate, he'd lived with Jesus for three years. And in those three years, he'd listened to all of Jesus' public teachings, and most likely he'd heard most of his private conversations as well. And in those three years, he'd watched Jesus perform countless miracles, and he'd seen him drive out multitudes of demons, and Jesus, while Jesus was changing people's lives for the good, there was Judas every moment. Judas had been one of Jesus' trusted insiders. And yet, he betrayed him. This is so hard to figure out. In fact, it's been so hard to figure out that no one even seems to try. Uh, most scholars have just come to the conclusion that Judas was simply an evil man at his core. In fact, medieval theologians concluded that when all is said and done, Judas and Satan will spend all of eternity together in the very lowest level of hell. Why, even in almost all of the paintings that we have of the disciples, you can tell immediately when you look at the painting which one of them is Judas. He's that dark, brooding guy on the side. He's the one that's slinking around on the edges of things. 
But the truth is, the Bible doesn't tell us too much about him. All four Gospels do mention him, but none tell us at all about Jesus calling Judas to be his disciple. And only a couple of the Gospels give us any detail whatsoever about him, except that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell us that he betrayed Jesus by turning him over to the Jewish religious leaders. But the question remains, why would he do this? What could possibly have driven Judas to turn on Jesus? Jesus of all people. Well, we're now in the third week of our Easter series that we're calling In the Moment. It's our look of the events of Easter through the eyes of Jesus' disciple, Peter. And two weeks ago, Dave talked about what happened on that chaotic night that we refer to as the Last Supper. And then last week, Barry took us into the Garden of Gethsemane, and we saw the disciples' inability to stand with Jesus in his darkest hour. And now we come to Judas. Now, we believe that we can have a pretty good picture of what Peter thought about the whole of the Easter story by reading the Gospel of Mark. And just as an aside, I'm going to put on the app all of the technical reasons that we believe that the Gospel of Mark is essentially Peter's recollections of his time with Jesus. And yes, Peter did have a couple of things to say about Judas, but not much. He tells us in Mark 3 verse 19 that Judas Iscariot was one of the original disciples. He's giving a list of the 12 when Jesus called them, and he names Judas last. He says, Judas Iscariot, but he adds this with his name right there. It says, the one who indeed betrayed Jesus. In fact, that word in the Greek that gives us indeed is to, like, like if anybody's wondering about it, it was really him. And then after that terse introduction, Peter says absolutely nothing else about Judas until he tells us when Judas decided to betray Jesus and then how he betrayed Jesus. And that's all he tells us. Now, I think that there may be a good reason that why Peter is so thin on details about Judas. Peter, if you know his story, and Barry talked a good deal about this last week, uh, Peter had his own embarrassments to deal with when it came to the time around the arrest and the trial of Jesus. Peter may not have betrayed Jesus, but he certainly denied ever having known him. Three times he denied knowing who Jesus was during the exact moments that Jesus was being cruelly interrogated by the high priest. My bet is that uh, Peter didn't want to do a lot of finger pointing especially when it came to retelling this moment in history um, because Peter knew that he had a lot to answer for himself. But I do think that if we take all that we do know about Judas and we do a little CSI sort of thinking, um, we can figure out what it might have been that motivated Judas that night he betrayed Jesus. First, let's start with his name. 
His name is Judas Iscariot. Iscariot was not his last name. It simply means man from Kerioth. And Kerioth was a town in the south part of Judea. And it was about a day's walk south of Jerusalem. So here's Jerusalem and here's Kerioth, about 20 miles from there. Now what this means is this. It, what it means is that Judas was the only one of the 12 disciples who was not from Galilee. And Galilee was, there's, here's Judea with Jerusalem here, and then you go up through Samaria, and then Galilee's way up here. It's way up there. It was a three-day walk from Galilee to down to Jerusalem. And in that day, the people from Judea were thought to be the sophisticates. And the Galileans were all considered to be country bumpkins. And they all had a country bumpkin accent. In fact, it was Peter's accent that made everybody just assume that he knew Jesus on that night, that he, that he denied knowing him. So Judas starts off being the only disciple that sounds like he's cultured. And he may have even had some kind of Judean urban education that made him the right candidate, as John gospel, John's gospel tells us, to be put in charge of taking care of everybody's money. He took care of everybody's money. And it might be because he was the only one who knew how to count like he did. We can also assume if Judas was from Judea, he most likely first met Jesus when Jesus made that three-day trip from Galilee down into Judea to be baptized by John the Baptist. My bet is this, that Judas was probably pretty serious about spiritual things. And he'd been listening to John the Baptist who was just in his neighborhood. And then along comes Jesus and he chose to follow Jesus and he traveled back up those three days walk up to Galilee to follow him. But unfortunately, though we hear nothing about Judas at all from the naming of the 12 disciples, until almost the end of the story. That's about all we get about him. There is an important moment, though, a really important moment that takes place one week before Jesus goes to the cross. But before we talk about that, I want us to think about something else. We can assume that during the three years that Judas spent with Jesus, that he was involved in everything that the other 11 disciples were involved in. He saw all the miracles. He heard all the teaching. He was sent out by Jesus to spread the news of the gospel. He was also given authority from Jesus to cast out unclean spirits and heal the sick. Nothing ever tells us that Judas was standing on the sidelines during any of Jesus' ministry. But then comes this one moment I was talking about, this one moment where everything seems to change, and it's a moment that three of the four gospel writers go to great lengths to describe. And it's a moment when Jesus is anointed with oil 
at a big fancy banquet by a woman named Mary. Now, each gospel writer has a little bit of a different take on what happened that evening. But here's the story in a nutshell. It was a week of Passover, and that's the most important week on the religious calendar for the Jews. And Jesus was the guest of honor at a large banquet that was held in a, the town of Bethany. And that town is just outside of Jerusalem. So it makes sense that everybody was going to go to Jerusalem for Passover, and Jesus is in Bethany. And Lazarus, the man that Jesus had just recently raised from the dead, was also at this banquet. Because guess what? Bethany was Lazarus' hometown. And so they're both there, the guests of honor at a big feast. And while everyone was eating, Mary, who happened to be Lazarus' sister, she took a 12-ounce bottle of oil. Well, well here, I'm just going to read the passage to you. If everybody has anybody, grab a Bible at home and turn to John 12, verse 3. And I'll read about this banquet. This is what it says. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, this story is in two other Gospels. Matthew talks about it, and Mark talks about it. And in both of these Gospels, the very next words after Jesus finishes saying what he said, the very next words are these. Then Judas decided to go to the leading priests and find out how much they would pay him to betray Jesus. It seems very clear to me that Jesus is, Jesus is rough, public response to Judas trying to look like some pious religious man who was deeply worried about the poor in front of a crowd of probably Jerusalem bigwigs, this response of Jesus toward him just cut him to the core. Now remember, they're in Judas's territory now. They're, they're not up in Galilee anymore. They're in sophisticated Judea. And if there was any place that Judas wanted to make a great impression, it was here. And Jesus had publicly called him out. He'd publicly shamed him. He'd publicly made him look like a fool over the actions of a seemingly ridiculously acting woman. In fact, the Greek here isn't as nice as the NLT's leave her alone. It simply says... Alface outtain. Alface outtain. It means leave her. That's exactly what it means. 
And we know that these words of Jesus would have made Judas the talk of the town. He'd have been the butt of every joke the next morning. Did you hear what Jesus said to Judas in front of everyone last night at the big banquet? I'm sure Alphys Otain was just ringing loudly in Judas's ears. And what seems to have happened was that Judas decided right then and there to find a way to get even, to make Jesus pay for shaming him, especially shaming him in public, at a fancy dinner over the extravagance of a woman. Now, we do know from what we read in John's Gospel that Judas was hiding a secret. He was stealing the disciples' money. One of the most important spiritual acts or public spiritual acts of the Jewish world in the first century was to give money to the poor. So it would have been easy if you were in charge of other people's money to take some for yourself and say, well, I just gave it to the poor. I gave it to the poor and you can put it in your own pocket. My bet is that Judas went to the religious leaders thinking he could turn Jesus over to them They'd rough him up a bit. They'd bring him down off his high horse for a while. They'd put him in his place, make him go through some public shaming of some sort during Passover week of all times, and Judas could get silent revenge. And it'd all be over in a little while, and he'd just feel better about it. You see, Judas knew that it would be really hard for these religious leaders to know which man in a large crowd was actually Jesus. Remember that nobody had photographs of anybody back then. Nobody had pictures of anybody. Everybody had a beard. Every man had a beard. They all dressed essentially the same. And this group of Galileans all had the same accent. It was going to be really hard to know which one of these fellows was Jesus. But Judas knew who Jesus was. He could tell him from anybody else. And he could even take the religious leaders right to him in the middle of the night when all the crowds who loved Jesus were all in bed. And they could do this quickly. And he could be the perfect man for them. And that is exactly what he did. I am confident that he did this to get even, to get revenge, to placate his sense of being unjustly shamed, and to give Jesus some of his own medicine, and would all help keep his secret of stealing money under wraps. What we do know about Judas is that he didn't expect anything that happened after he turned Jesus over to them to happen. Listen to what it says in Matthew's gospel in chapter 27. If you want to turn to Matthew 27, verse 1, this is what it says. Very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him and led him away, and they took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. 
Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple, and he went out and hanged himself. The leading priests picked up the coins. It wouldn't be right to put this money in the temple treasury, they said, since it was payment for murder. After some discussion, they finally decided to buy a potter's field, and they made it into a cemetery for foreigners. That is why the field is still called the Field of Blood. This fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that says, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price at which he was valued by the people of Israel, and they purchased the potter's field as the Lord had directed. Just as an aside, the cost of a slave was 60 pieces of silver. Jesus was only worth half the price of a slave. Now, earlier I said that I didn't think that Peter had much to say about any of this in his telling of the story in Mark because he was still smarting over having denied that he knew Jesus. And I also think that some of Peter's reticence to talk too much about Judas was because he knew that having lived with Judas for three years, he wasn't all that different from Judas. No, he may not have wanted revenge, but he sure wasn't above lying about knowing Jesus to save his own skin. And he may not have wanted to publicly shame Jesus, but he sure didn't want to be publicly shamed for knowing Jesus. I'm sure that as Peter thought about things, as he thought about the events surrounding Jesus' death and his resurrection, and as he thought about all of the disciples' actions that night. He saw that everyone had their own moments of failure. And he didn't want to try to downplay his own failures by focusing on Judas. As I've been thinking about this aspect of the Easter story, it's been really clear to me that there's something very powerful to learn from Judas' story. This, may not, uh, this is not going to sound like theological rocket science, I know. But it is way too easy to point fingers at other people. Yes, we do know that Judas's desire for revenge became so strong that two of the gospel writers tell us that he even opened himself up to the presence of Satan. My thinking is that Satan wasn't going to give Judas an opportunity to back out of this one. And so he took advantage of a dark opening that he saw in Judas's soul that night. But the more that I've thought about all of this, Judas really isn't all that different from a lot of people. In fact, people like, like maybe all of us people, like I'll be honest, do I like being shamed? Especially publicly shamed? No. Do I ever want to get revenge when I feel like I've been seriously wronged? Well, maybe not revenge, revenge, but I like getting even in some way, and, or at least I like seeing somebody get what I think they deserve should be coming to them. And who among us doesn't want to have their secrets kept hidden? Now, I know I do. And I can't even count the number of times that I've done something thinking something like this, like, you know, this is going to work out great for me. 
But then the consequences of my foolish or selfish actions were, they're all completely unexpected, very different from what I thought was going to happen and always really bad for other people. Now, I know that Judas's actions were extreme, but he wasn't really that different from the rest of mankind. Here's what I've been thinking. Maybe the reason that Peter didn't want to focus on Judas's, Judas's life or Judas things, if you will, was that he wanted to get to the hopeful part of the story. He wanted to get to the one man who, unlike the rest of us, never responded inappropriately to any kind of offense. He wanted to get to that part of the Easter story that tells us that there was one man that stood silently and took unimaginable truly undeserved public shame. He wanted to tell everyone that there was one man who made no attempt to get revenge for the great injustices that were done to him, that there's one man who had no secrets, and yet he allowed others not only to question his every move, but he allowed people to bring false accusation after false accusation against him, and he stood silent. And we all know who this one man is. It's the same man who said this to Judas after Judas had kissed him as a way to tell the temple guards, this is the man you want. Jesus said, my friend. At the moment of the betrayal, he called Judas his friend. He said, my friend. Do what you've come to do. Only Jesus could have called Judas his friend in that moment. Only Jesus. I think this is why when Peter was later writing a letter to Jewish believers, it's a letter we now call 1 Peter, but when Peter was writing this letter, he wrote these words. And they're words that I am certain they reminded him of both of Jesus and of Judas on that night. These are words that scholars believe either were a, a hymn that the early Christian church sang or they became an early church worship song. We don't know which one. But Peter wrote this. He said, Jesus is our example and we must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have returned to your shepherd who is the guardian of your souls. That is the hope of Easter. Jesus, no matter what circumstances you may find yourself in today, he can be the guardian of your soul. Jesus is the one who sees us for who we truly are 
and yet he willingly carried our sin in his body on the cross. Jesus is the one who took the shame. Jesus took the humiliation. He took the rejection and he took our punishment. And on that first Easter morning, Jesus declared that we are now healed. We have been found. We have a home. And we have hope.